Hey everybody, Ron here, and before we get started, this is a special month for Home Base, and we have our annual run that's going to take place on September 26, 2020. As you know, Homebase Nation is the official podcast for Homebase Program for Veterans and Military Families in Boston, Mass. You might know that Homebase is in its 11th year thanks to our parent organizations, Mass General Hospital and the Red Sox Foundation. So each year we hold a 9K and 5K called the Run to Home Base in support of the clinical care that happens at home base for our veterans and their families, treating body, mind, and soul, post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, traumatic brain injury. So this year, no surprise, the Run to Home Base, like other events, will be virtual. So I'm gearing up for my third Run to Home Base, and along with my daughter, who's going to be doing a 5K or first 5K, and we're, we're starting the training together. Um, each person who signs up, including kids, will get a t-shirt, a new home base camo hat, and uh, some other really cool stuff. You can run it, walk it, anywhere, inside or outside. So register now at runtohomebase.org. And if you're part of Homebase Nation, that means you, um, use the promo code, capital HB Nation, for five bucks off on your registration fee. And remember, use the hashtag RTHB2020 to share any videos or photos that you have. Tell us where you are, why you're running, and who you run for. Thanks so much. This is Homebase Nation. I had this incredible feeling. We had just wrapped up a mission. We're waiting to get picked up. We're sitting on top of a building. And I'm talking to my intelligence sergeant. And I'm like, hey, where, where are we going next? He just turns around and he points to the valley behind us. And I'm like, is it going to be bad? He's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be bad. <laughs> this is Homebase Nation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Homebase Nation. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Hirschberg. In our last episode, we sat with Green Beret Kevin Flyke and the director of the JFK Presidential Library, also an Army veteran, Alan Price. The JFK legacy seemed to speak loudly to all of us in the library that day, with a unified message of U.S. service members winning hearts and minds with cultures all around the world. The Special Forces is the U.S. Army Special Operations Force established in 1952. In 1961, President Kennedy approved the Green Beret itself as the official headgear. And since then, we refer to our unconventional war experts who embed into local culture, learn the language and history, and gaining the respect while training together for a common mission. The guy to your left and right is not going to be an American. It's going yeah. to be that local national that you've been working at the rifle range with, that you've been hopefully building rapport with, and hopefully trust, right? And we know that Staff Sergeant Kevin Flake knew that the Special Forces were for him growing up in upstate New York. At the time, I just found so unique, right, that mm. I was going to learn different languages. I was going to learn these cultures and these customs. I was going to get to live with these people. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get paid to do this? Mm. Like, this is, this is amazing. Kevin had joined the Army in 2007, and four years later, in September 2011, he was severely wounded while deployed in northwest Afghanistan on a routine mission. And we were essentially doing a, a valley clearing operation, which would get dropped off at one end of a valley. We would clear through the small mud hut villages along the way and get picked up anywhere between one to three days later. He and his 11 Green Beret comrades and Afghan commandos were head-to-head -head in a Taliban firefight. But I always think it's funny that the last words that I said before I got shot is, if we don't get off this roof, we're going to get shot. And then I got off the roof and got shot. I'm 
I'm laying on the ground and people are coming up to the medic and saying, like, is Kevin going to make it or not? And he's like, I don't know. It looks pretty bad. But, you know, it's not what I want to hear. And you got guys who haven't paid me a compliment in years coming up to me with tears in their eyes telling me that they love me. Kevin was shot in the abdomen. He had injury to the stomach, colon, and a fractured hip and the femoral nerve that controls the leg muscles, which give us the ability to walk. Recovery for Kevin was not a simple, steady rise back to health. With pain came opiate addiction. Is this it? Is this what you're going to do with the rest of your life? I thought you had goals, right? I thought you had things you wanted to achieve in your life. Like, you think this is any way for you to honor your fallen comrades? I was mad, but I was mad because she was right. So drew a line in the sand the next day, stopped taking the, the pain meds, and I started studying for grad school. And then with more time away from his brothers came guilt. It's just all of a sudden, it seemed like everything kind of crashed on me. And I felt guilty almost because, like, I was happy because I was like, I'm done. I don't have to go to bed at night. I wonder if I'm going to get killed the next day. And this recovery for Kevin has been a life-changing experience in and of itself, and it brings new ways of service and new life chapters. There was never going to be a point in my life where I was, like, 100% physically, mentally, and emotionally healed. And for the rest of my life, I'll need to put a daily effort into this second chance at life that I have to honor my fallen brothers. So every day, I, I still put a ton of effort into being who I am to get better every day. We just spoke with Alan Price, who's the director of the JFK Library and um, an Army veteran himself. And... It's pretty amazing how JFK's legacy has touched so many areas. And we talked about the Peace Corps, um, and of course we talked about special ops. And, uh, and it's an honor to sit and get to know somebody and talk about um, that legacy. But really, um, I want to thank you for what you started to think about when you were in high school, um, when I know that Navy SEAL... Uh, video or whatever was played, right? Yeah. And that triggered that idea that this is, this is me. Um, what comes to mind actually from that last conversation we had with um, Alan was that PT-109 uh, boat that Kennedy was on with his, where he was with his fellow sailors. And you can't help but think about that camaraderie that you have with your, your other uh, squad mates. And then we heard about Kennedy's... Um, when the boat was uh, attacked and the, the, uh, how he sort of got to safety. So I know that your eyes kind of perked up when, we were talk- when he was talking about that camaraderie and then that injury. So you've told this story a lot. How do you want to tell it? It's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. They, everybody always just wants to hear the story. Um, well, let me ask you another question then. Yeah. So you're from a, uh, a military family at all? Uh, you know, just had typical, like, you know, I had some uh, grandfathers in World War II, uh, some of my great uncles also. Um, you know, my father wasn't in the military, you know, but had obviously the utmost respect for it. We studied World War II in my family fanatically because yeah. of my grandfather's service. And, you know, I think that that really, you know, sh- kind of showed me this avenue of military service. And, you know, I had a mother who every day before we would go to school, she would say to my brothers and I, you're a flake, you're an achiever. 
Huh. Right? She didn't say you deserve anything, right? She said you're an achiever, like you go out and you, you do things. Uh, I saw my father, and we're from a very small town called Stillwater in upstate New York. Sure. Remarkable place to grow up, great community. It's, I am who I am because of it. And, you know, my father is in this town. He graduates second to last in his high school class. And, you know, he, he doesn't finish college and then becomes a, a multimillionaire, self-made on mm. his own. And so to, to be able to see that, to see that drive, that work ethic towards something, right? You put your head down, you work hard, you set your goals. Um, and then to have my mother, you know, who believed in him and who really believed in us, like to have that propping us up also, I think it really instilled in me this hunger to just get out there and just try to light the world on fire and understand hmm. that there was really nothing that uh, I couldn't do. In the beginning of your documentary, Wounded by War, one of the first things that sort of lit up to me was hearing your parents say that you guys can do anything. You just got to work really hard for it. And giving that to a kid, you have young kids, I have kids, and um, that can be powerful. So that tie into your grandfather and knowing that there's sort of, that there is this service in the family. And here we are in the Kennedy Library, and that's sort of uh, a testament to that generations of service. Um, when uh, when you went into the army, uh, were you thinking specifically, um, I want to get trained in a higher um, in a higher level of combat and intelligence? Right. I, I started at an all boys Catholic military school called LaSalle uh, from the time I was twelve, and I, I graduated from there. And so, you know, early from the, the moment I can remember, I have my father going out, achieving his goals, my mother believing in him, believing in us, telling us we can do whatever we want as long as we're willing to work for it. The same with my father. You know, and then it was very much fostered going to this all-boys Catholic military school, right? Like, really learn to love God. Catholic military. Oh, yeah. We, we had the trifecta. I had a much different experience than, uh, than most people. Right. Um, so I've had military grooming standards since I was 14. Uh, we used to march in gym class instead uh -huh. of doing gym class. So huh. it all came in very handy when I went to basic training. I was already a little leg up on everyone. Right. Uh, but the, you know, teaching me there to love God, love country, and you know, that Catholic mission that there's just things in life that are greater than yourself, right? Put other people above yourself. And so that, you know, this upbringing that I had, then to be able to have this from 12 to 18 there, just really made me understand that I had this, wanted to serve a greater purpose in life. Mm. And under, like the military, for me, just seemed like that was the natural thing, right? That was my ability to answer this call of greater service, to put other people above myself. There's a selfless aspect there. Yes, yeah. But also the need to really work your butt off. And hey, and it's, you to know. To succeed. There's not, uh, there's also the aspect of like wanting to see if you can do it, right? Like wanting to prove it to yourself. Yeah, you're a teenager. Yeah. And... But it sounds so genuine. It was rooted in you from day one. Yeah, I think just, you know, the upbringing that I had, the community I grew up in, the school I went to, um, it's just like this natural, this journey was, was predestined for me. Okay, so you go in, you go to college. Yep. But you knew even in high school, 9-11 happened. 
2001, you knew that you had a calling. Yeah, 9-11 happens in my senior year of high school, all right? So it goes from this kind of special operations fascination mm. to, okay, this is now your duty to do this. Uh, so I went to college, you know, fully with the intention of I was going to go to officer candidate school after I graduated. But in 2002, when I started school, that was, you know, after the invasion of Afghanistan, and a lot of stories were starting to get out about the Green Berets and the horse soldiers and taking over the country. So you start having some books come out, like you know, Masters of Chaos, hmm. um, I think the uh, Twelve Strong. And so I'm, yeah. I'm reading about these guys, and I'm starting to explore, like, okay, well, you know, you want to be in special operations, so what do you want to do in special operations? What about the special ops? So there's, there's special operations, right? And then underneath that umbrella is like Rangers and Navy SEALs and Green Berets and Air Force combat controllers and, you know, the, the other special operations units you would think of. And right. there's only one special forces, right? And that's, that's the Green Berets. Green Beret, right. Yeah. yeah. And, so, but, and so special forces certainly became known as the Green Berets, in 1962 or so when Kennedy uh, helped coin that. Um, but getting back to what inspired you within the Special Forces or Green Beret, I know there's multifacets within that, unconventional warfare, things like that. Yeah. yeah. So I think what really drew me to the Green Berets was you know, their motto is De Oppresso Liber, right, to free the oppressed. And, you know, you're like, as a Green Beret, you're, you're kind of like a consultant for the United States military. You work on a 12-man team, you travel to foreign countries, you train their militaries and their militias, and you're really trying to create this like freestanding military. You know, in the case of an Iraq or Afghanistan, you're actually going to go to combat with those guys that you right. train, right? So the guy to your left and right is not going to be an American. It's going to yeah. be that local national that you've been working at the rifle range with, that you've been hopefully building rapport with, and, you know, you're... Hopefully trust. Yeah, hopefully trust, right? Uh, and... You know, it's not, it's not just about the combat piece, right? Like, if you're going to build a freestanding military, right, then you have to do things like your medics got to teach your cooks how to prepare their food in a way in which everybody's not going to get sick, right? You got to teach. I, I was an engineer. I did supply and logistics for my team. Like, I got to go and teach these guys, hey, look, like, we can't do anything without supplies and logistics. So this <laughs> is kind of what we need to do. So there's that whole other element to it that I, at the time, I just found so unique, right? That mm. I was going to learn different languages. I was going to learn these cultures and these customs. I was going to get to live with these people. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm going to get paid to do this? Mm. Like, this is, this is amazing. And so I think that, that was my real initial attraction to the Special Forces and the Special Forces mission. Was culture. Yeah. And, and the, the, the fact that it, was, it wasn't just all about the combat, right? It was about these whole other aspects hmm. that you got to do and the difference that I felt like I could make. So you go into the Philippines, Thailand, you're getting into different cultures around the world. And I know you deploy a couple times to Afghanistan, right? Yes. Take me up to that. So you're in Afghanistan in what year again? I did a deployment. So I was in the Philippines in 2009, uh, Afghanistan in 2010. And, you know, we got home on a Friday from that deployment. We went back to work on Monday. And they said, great job, boys. Weekend off. Yeah, you're going back to Afghanistan in seven months. Um, 
by the way, we need you to go to Thailand for a month and a half. And by the way, we need you to do these two separate training iterations. And also your second Afghanistan deployment will be the longest special operations deployment of the war. So you put everything on a calendar, right? Did they tell you that before the weekend or after? Oh, after, luckily. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. So okay. these guys 48 hours off here. Um, but yeah, I mean, typical SF deployment would be about seven months mm -hmm. uh, in Afghanistan or like in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And our s first one was seven. Our second one was going to be 11 months. Longest so, one ever. Yeah, of the, at the time. I'm not sure if they've exceeded that or not, but uh, it was pretty tough for us. So hopefully they didn't repeat that. But, you know, we ended up spending 18 out of 24 months in Afghanistan uh, working with the Afghan commandos. And you know, when you put all the other the trip to Thailand, the training iterations, you know, my team was home for anywhere between three to four months in, in a two-year time frame there and married the whole time. So you can imagine that married went over, the whole time. Yeah, went over pretty well. 2011 comes, um, happens to be September, and you've talked about culture and your interest in the world and being, being connected with uh, the soldiers to your left and right that may not be Americans. Um, but I also know, and I, I read and I, I saw that you uh, stepped foot on that soil in that valley. Um, what really um, struck me it was that when you mentioned that no matter how much you learned about the culture and the people in Afghanistan, no matter how much trust there was, that was your first step you took in that valley. But for everybody else there, it was just decades and decades of knowing that, that terrain. Yeah. And that, you felt that the minute you touched ground. Yeah. September 25th, 2011, we land under the cover of darkness, which is something we always tried to do, obviously, uh, with the helicopters. And that dust settles. And I look up at this valley, and I'm like, whew, today is, is going to suck. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, as you just said earlier, like with every, I just had this thought, right? Everybody that we're going to go against today has lived there their entire lives. And then their parents and their grandparents. Right. And uh, with every step I take here, this is, this is all brand new here for me. It's, it's crazy to me how you're going through some very intense um, moments in war and you have thoughts like this. Hmm. Um, you know, I can distinctly remember being on the back of a helicopter one time. We're getting ready to assault a village. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I got 40 guys on there that I'm in charge of. And I say to myself, like, hey, you know, you're 27. This might be the coolest you're ever going to be in your life. Uh, hmm. <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, I, I remember wow. one time on a, a lot of thoughts happened on the back of the helicopter. I'm thinking to myself, like, hey, do you know, do you really believe in God? That I'm like, why are you thinking about this right now? Yeah. Um, but maybe it's just something about the intensity of the experience of being in war and what's happening and, you know, the next second's not guaranteed that allows these incredible thoughts to, to come into your mind. Yeah, there are people that live their whole lives that don't have thoughts like that, or they, or they do, and um, they may not mean as much. Tell me more about the, um, that day. So we were seven months into our second deployment there, and we had worked with the Afghan commandos on both deployments. We were based out of Kunduz, who was our home base. Uh, on the second deployment, we had a lot more uh, air assets, a lot more support, 
and we were covering all of northern Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of the second deployment in Faryab province in the northwestern part. And so that's where this mission took place there. And we were essentially doing a, a valley clearing operation, which would get dropped off at one end of a valley. Uh, we would clear through the small mud hut villages along the way and get picked up anywhere between one to three days later. And when, when I say clear, I mean like we were going to talk to the villagers. We we're going to look for weapons caches. We we're going to collect information. And uh, maybe one out of five, one out of six times, we'd get into a firefight. Uh, so, you know, at this point, we're this well-oiled machine. We're working very well together. Um, but, you know, we're never going anywhere because it's good. People want to give you hugs and high fives, right? So, right. you know, everybody's very much, you know, taking everything very seriously. And uh, remind me who you're with the whole time. So it's, it's my team of Green Berets, um, and then there's some attachments to us, you know, like a EOD guys, um, you know, to help us along the way. And then the majority of the force is the Afghan commandos. Probably okay. About and what's the size of that total? Uh, I'd say about 100 to 120 people. Okay. Yeah. So if you look on the ground that day, you're probably anywhere between 125 to like 140 145. So I'm trying to visualize this. You guys are 10% of that whole cadre of people going through. Yeah. I mean, that's that was pretty typical. Um, okay. On any Green Beret mission, you're going to be 10 to 15% of the ground force there. So you got you to gotta trust the people you're working with, right? Like people say, do you trust those guys? I say, I didn't have a choice. I had to because those that was the majority of the force, right? And I think that that really... For me, like the most important thing that I could do was build a rapport with those guys so that we could go out and do those missions. Right. So you're going through, and one out of five. Yep. Um, certainly, like you said, there's in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, is this the time? Um, and so did you have any sense that there was something? I know it's all 2020 now, but is, was there any sense then that there was something that was going to happen? Yeah. You just have this gut feeling every once in a while. You had that that morning? Yeah. We, we made it through the first deployment unscathed, um, my team, by the grace of God. And to me, in my mind, that just said, like, it's not because we're that good, it's because we're that lucky. But I felt like every time then that we went out, and just the odds increased. It's like something has to happen at some point here. So we're seven months into this deployment. We made it through an initial seven-month deployment. And you're seven out yeah. of 11 now. Yeah, and I'm like, when, like, we can't just keep, you, you know, you can't keep uh, going to firefights without somebody getting shot. And I had this incredible feeling. Um, it's funny, about three days before this mission, we had just wrapped up a mission. We are waiting to get picked up. We're sitting on top of a building, and I'm talking to my intelligence sergeant. And I'm like, hey, where, where are we going next? He just turns around and he points to the valley behind us. And I'm like, is it going to be bad? He's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be bad. <laughs> and so we, we get back and we refit. And There's then, no mincing words in this business. No, it's, it's very straightforward yeah. all yeah. the time, which yeah. I appreciate. You need, yeah, I get it. And well, I don't really get it. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. We, uh, we get back. After this mission, and I see the task organization come out for September 25th, 2011, the mission I got shot on, and my name wasn't on there. Hmm. And I'm like, no way. 
firefight's going to happen, I'm going to be there, right? Wow. We talked about earlier, right, 12 guys on a special forces team. That means 11 other guys' lives are more important than yours. So I found my team sergeant and, you know, gave him this whole song and dance. And I was pretty full of myself. I admit, I was an average Green Beret, right? Average at best. But I give him this whole song and dance about how you don't want to put Michael Jordan on the bench during the finals. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I think he, he saw this, like... A bit of confidence. Yeah. You know, a little confidence. He said he used to see, you know, his younger version of himself in me. So right. he tried to, to help me with that <laughs> and, you know, begged him to let me get on this mission. And then uh, he's like, hey, look, if you can find someone to take your spot, then I'll, I'll let you go. Hmm. And this so, is three days before. Yeah. Uh, and I found someone who was like on our company support staff who otherwise wouldn't be doing anything. But then, you know, being able to, uh, you know, allow me to, to take this spot and he was going to be in charge of our quick reaction force instead of me. Um, so, you know, I was like, all right, Hey, I found somebody. I'm good. And he's like, all right, well, this is, this is what you're going to, this is your squad for the day. And so, you know, got onto that mission because I, I just knew something was up and the whole time I still knew something was going to happen to me. Like even saying I need to get on this thing, but not, not just to the whole so something was going to happen to one of the 12. Of something you. was going to happen it, to me. You felt that. Yeah, I, I, I thought something was going to happen specifically. So, like, I called everybody in my family the night before uh, we went on this mission because uh, I knew something. I, I just had this feeling, right? I, I wanted to call my, my parents, my wife, my brothers, just to say hello to them and didn't obviously allude to anything. Like when I, I was like, oh, hey, I got to get going. I got to go like work on our trucks or something like, right. like I'm going out to this very dangerous valley in northwestern Afghanistan. Um, but it's just it's something like I knew in my heart was, was going to happen. On I'm that glad day. you said something to him. Yeah. But I'm also glad that you're able to, on the other end, keep talking. Yeah. So tell me about that. <laughs> so what happened that day? Yeah. You know, as soon as the sun started coming up over the mountains, uh, one of my teammates began to take heavy fire. Um, and his whole squad, squad's 10 people, they, they were near ambushed. Mm -hmm. And so for a couple minutes, the radios are flaring up. People want to, you know, we're going to move over here. I'm going to move over here. I'm going to do this. Um, you know, but ultimately it was like, all right, let's just drop some bombs on this location. And, and we did it and thought that was kind of going to be it for the day. But those bombs really only served to embolden the enemy. And so for the rest of the day, going back and forth in this valley as the sun's getting hotter and hotter, and, you know, it's the end of September, so it's only like 90 degrees outside instead of like 120, which is, we got stuck out in that sometimes. You know, we're going back and forth in this valley, and then in the 10th hour of the fight, we're taking fire from a building to the front of us. Um, a teammate of mine, you know, he... He crosses this valley. He goes to take this compound down. Like, I'm standing on this roof trying to draw fire to myself. My teammates are doing the same thing at their location. They're waving VS-17 panels around, like a bright-colored construction vest, huh. trying to draw fire to themselves, right? It's, it's that love, right? It's that love for the other 11 guys. And my teammate makes As they it. go forward. Well, so, yeah, as my teammate— They need to keep forward, and you need to distract— my, my, yeah, so we're, we're trying to distract, right, so that our teammate can make it into this compound. Yeah. 
and you know, he makes it into the compound and my team sergeant gets on the radio and he basically tells me you know to get the f off the roof <laughs> and i'm like yeah that's probably a good idea and i i talk to the afghans real quick and i'm screaming and i'm like if we don't get off this roof we're gonna get shot mm-hmm. and so i'm the last person off i go around the corner of the building want to figure out how i'm going to reorganize my squad and push forward and i kind of take a step out from the corner of the building and I get to the front and then just felt like somebody came up and hit me in the stomach with a sledgehammer just lifted in midair you were the last last guy on the roof yeah but I always think it's funny the last words that I said before I got shot is if we don't get off this roof we're gonna get shot and then I got off the roof and got shot yeah there you go (laughs) yeah (laughs) somehow I think it's good that you get off the roof anyway yeah right you know but okay so so you get the shot or you get hit and that's a powerful, I can't imagine, a, a very powerful feeling. Um, you mentioned before there's a lot of thoughts you have in the back of a helicopter being 27 years old. What kind of thoughts are going on in the next few minutes? So there, my first thing was, I mean, the pain was the most intense thing I'd ever felt in my life. And it's a testament to the thousands of hours of training that people gave me from the moment I joined the Army. right? And then I... I say to people, I'm like, look, we have these standard operating procedures in the military, so when the shit hits the fan, you're going to revert back to what you know, mm. right? And you better know the right thing, and that's why you practice these things thousands of times. Right. It's something I apply to my life now, right? Like a resiliency practice. I'm like, hey, when, tough get, when, when things get tough in life, I gotta re- I'm going to revert back to what I know, so it better be something good. It better not be destructive. I, but the, mm. this experience affirmed that for me because – I kept, began to keep myself, like, say to myself, all right, like, you need to calm down, keep yourself conscious, gather your thoughts. I crawled back, I put my headphones on, I called my teammates, mm. gave them my call sign, my location, let them know I'd been shot. And after that, I started to think to myself, like, I had this massive pain down my left leg, and I wasn't sure if I'd gotten shot there also. And so when you, you, know, when you think you've been shot in the leg, you think your femoral arteries been hit, right? And so I said to myself, like, you got two to three minutes to live, so let's go. I started padding up and down my leg, trying to find where the blood was coming from. But after several attempts at this, there was nothing. And it, really all the bleeding was you, internal. You realize it was up in yeah. the belly. So I'm just, nothing I can do except for lay on the ground there and try to keep conscious, try to fight this pain. Minutes felt like years. And I get back on the radio again, and I call my teammates, and I'm, like, using choice words, dropping F-bombs. <laughs> you guys got to get to me. The fight had really picked up at that point. Those guys were pinned down by some pretty heavy volumes of fire. You know, and then I get off the radio that second time, and it's awesome uh, to see a guy that I'd spent almost two years training mm. runs out into the open, Afghan commando. And this is the Afghan guy. Yeah. I don't think the guy ever really honestly got his due deserve, and it was just such a hectic period of time. Uh, Can you picture his face now? Before, not not at the time of your shot. It's funny, I can't picture his face, but I remember he was carrying like a 203 grenade launcher. It's like, it's funny how these things kind of like. But you knew him for two years in training and getting to know his culture and trusting each other. Yeah, and it wasn't like two straight years of training, right? Like there'd be yeah. different cycles of sure. it. Like I'd see him for six weeks, and I wouldn't see him for twelve weeks. I'd see him for another six and stuff. Um, but you know, essentially, been working with his unit for for almost two years there. 
Okay, so the Afghan comrade basically comes out and pulls you to safety. Yeah, he gets me behind this building, and guys from my team begin to start flooding in and start to frantically working on me, and I'm laying on the ground, and people are coming up to the medic and saying, like, is Kevin going to make it or not? And he's like, I don't know. It looks pretty bad. But, you know, I can hear them the entire time. So it's, it's not what I want to hear. And you got guys who haven't yeah. uh, paid me a compliment in years coming up to me with tears in their eyes telling me that they love me. Hmm. And, yeah. you know, you're putting two and two together because you practice this all the time, how to treat somebody who's in a rough shape. And you're like, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, this is it. I'm me. the guy. Yeah. So these guys come up to you. And you hear in the background that things are not looking good. How long is it before you get to the helicopter? So it's like 45 minutes from the time that I was wounded until I got loaded on the helicopter. Um, just out in a very rural part of Afghanistan. And from getting on the helicopter to the surgery tent was about 15 minutes hmm. uh, flight time. You know, but at that point, I'm on fentanyl and I am... Not sure if I'm in a helicopter, if I'm flying on my own at that point. Yeah. But still remember, you know, the ride, still remember getting dropped off and people cutting my uniform off and surgeon asking me questions and, yeah, you know, ultimately, you know, asking me if I have any questions and I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. So ask him to save the bullet and ask for my last rights. And did a priest come? Well, it, Did luckily, they have someone right there. Or? No, no. I just you know, it was like, hey, I, I need my last rites. Cause I think I'm gonna. I need a Catholic priest to do it. That's kind of the last thing you remember saying. Yeah. And uh, then it was anesthesia. Yeah. Anesthesia. Let's go. Yeah. And you know, luckily, it never got to that point. Um, but my first recollection occurred four days later. I asked mm-hmm. someone if I'd gone to heaven or hell. They're like, neither. You're in Launchstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany. Here. Try to describe that. Feeling of when you opened your eyes and talked to another person in Germany. It was amazing to just like to feel that you were alive. Like in that moment, I wanted to give them everything I had and owned in my life, like as a token of gratitude. Hmm. Like even though they weren't necessarily the ones that did everything, there was a whole multitude of people. But like the thankfulness that I felt was unrivaled. When did that amazing feeling and the thankfulness and that gratitude shift gears to questions? Pretty quick. What happened? Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty quickly. I mean, was it hours? Was it days? So this was like a, um, you know, this was a pretty brief period that I remember. And then the next thing you know, I'm in the intensive care unit people are continuously having to remind me of what's going on and the situation that I'm in, Mm. um, everything that's happened to me. And so it's very confusing, very emotional for me, uh, crying a lot. And it just was like the gravity of everything hit me, not just the injuries, not just the pain, but everything that had happened over the course of two, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the, the hardest deployments, but I didn't have the easiest. Right. And so it's just all of a sudden it seemed like everything kind of crashed on me. Um, and I felt guilty almost because like mm. I was happy cause I was like, I'm done. I don't have to go back to Afghanistan again. I don't have to, I don't have to go to bed at night. I wonder if I'm going to get killed the next day. 
and I felt safe, but I knew my teammates were still there, which made me feel bad that I wasn't there for them. How do you balance that survivor's guilt with the feeling of, I'm safe? It took me uh, years, I think, yeah. to, to, uh, to deal with that survivor's guilt, right? The, uh, on that second deployment, our company lost uh, three guys. A fourth guy killed himself almost as soon as we got back. Mm. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. One of my teammates, uh, Sergeant First Class Benjamin Wise, was killed like two weeks before the team came home. And so for me to think about that for a long time, like that that was, that was like the one fire fight that I wasn't at, right? And, and he gets killed. Uh, was a, a pretty difficult thing for me to, to have to kind of come to grips with. And this looming question that hung over my head for a long period of time of why did these guys pay the ultimate sacrifice? Why were you spared? Why are you enduring all this suffering? And why didn't God just let you die? The ultimate sacrifice is death. That's what you were alluding to, right? Yeah. The sacrifice someone can make over a lifetime of service and someone like yourself and then to get injured and to push forward and rehabilitate and actually impact um, multiple other people's lives is another sacrifice. That's what I had to come to understand. Yeah, you can't, if you're in it, I can't imagine. Yeah. You know, it's easier for me to say that as someone yeah. that's sort of looking at your career. Right. But how, when did you start figuring that out? Yeah, that, that, was, that was a hard lesson to come by. And I think... You know, for, from the time I was 14, this is something I wanted to do with my life, right? Mm. You can imagine achieving your life goals by the time you're, like, 25, right? Like, no. that's all I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. Be on a special force team, go to Afghanistan, or, you know, deploy. Um, and when you don't get to choose when you walk away from something, it's very difficult, right? Mm. Um, so I didn't get to choose when I walked away from this, right? I didn't get to say enough was enough or... Right, right. That uh, bullet chose it for you. Yeah. And so, and it also took away everything that I defined myself by. My physical prowess, um, my ability to outwork anybody, uh, my being a Green Beret, right? All gone in that instant there. And for me, it was almost like this identity crisis too of, mm. of trying to understand what was next for me, right? Why was all of this happening here? Hmm. You know, that, that makes me think of this scene in, in, your, in your movie where you talk about the very fact you're a high school football star, you're achieving... I played in college, too. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> Union College, yeah. class of, yeah. Um, we were top 10 in the country okay. my senior year, so... I'm sorry, man, my bad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So... Football leads to, went into the Army, into special ops. And here you are, I think it was like six months later or longer, where your, your leg starts to twitch in a good way. And yep. you feel the first inkling of a, of a muscle movement. And it, it, it was like the best accomplishment in your career. Yeah, so that, that was actually about nine months, nine or ten months after I was hurt, uh, 
you know, I ended up having to go to the Mayo Clinic for yeah. a nerve grafting surgery. It was experimental. And, you know, every day after that surgery, I'd hang my legs off the side of the bed and be like, today's the day your leg's going to work, right? I'm still 27. I still think I can will myself to get better. And, you know, nothing would happen, right? Right. The leg would just dangle there. And to then six months after that surgery, see that muscle twitch in my leg, you know, I was like... 300 pound bench presses and five minute miles used to be how I used to right. <laughs> mark my physical fitness. And that is, and that, that muscle twitch was, it was what I needed. Right. Because There's I was a spark. Yeah. I, I felt like I was nearing rock bottom at that point. Um, so you could see hope at that time. Yeah. I was like this, this works, right? Like this, this worked. Um, I'd have somebody else look at it cause I thought I was crazy at that right. point. And I'm like, all right, I think, you know, we can, we can work with this. It's not time to give up on this yet. So it sounds like your femoral nerve was shot. Literally, I mean, I don't mean shot, but it was it was gone, meaning. And because that's the quadriceps. Right. That's the quads, right? So then they had to reattach it at the Mayo Clinic. Is so, that correct? Or? Yeah, the injuries um, were uh, you know, shot in the stomach about an inch or two below my body armor. Uh, my hip was fractured. I had a large portion of my colon taken out because the bullet hit my colon. But it, it, it didn't sever my femoral nerve, but it, it damaged it to the point that, that basically, if you think of like the, the yeah. nerves as like an electrical outlet, right? They, they yeah. couldn't pass through. There was so much scar tissue and damage there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was really, those were all of the injuries that I was dealing with. So I have about 40 inches of scars from all the surgeries. Right. No, so, and, and just, I guess, to step back is that, that the injury constellation you had was literally life or death at the, at the, at the moment of the, of the, the gunshot. Um, but what was so tangible, it seems, is, and, and what reflects on your independence was that left leg. And I think that um, that muscle twitch seemed to bring you to the next level. Yeah, I think it was the spark, right? It was the spark that kept me going. Um, I was down in the dumps. I mean, I was a needed a lot of help from people, um, wasn't the person that I was going to be, or, you know, that I had been in the past and realized that going forward, right, uh, things were going to be different. And I think kind of around that same time frame that I saw that, that twitch, my wife sat me mm -hmm. down and, you know, I, I developed a reliance on my pain meds, right? Um, when I left the Mayo Clinic, I prescribed 12 pills of Percocet, 12 Dilaudid and, and two Valium, right? 26 pills a day. Um, so you had built up over time some tolerance, and were you addicted? Yeah, I mean, I so your body was just chemically addicted. There's no other way to put it. Um, you know, I was able to work myself down quite a bit from that 26 to two or three a day, but to get to that last cutoff point was was pretty brutal for me. And that's when your wife said, "She sat me down. Guys, and she's like, hey, is this it? Right? Is this what you're going to do with the rest of your life?'" And, you know, I tried to play the wounded veteran card, but she's like, look, like, I thought you had goals, right? I thought you had things you wanted to achieve in your life. Like, you think this is any way for you to honor your fallen comrades? That's, hmm. that stings, right? That stings. She, my wife knows where to, where to stick the knife in, right? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. But, uh, I was mad, yep. but I was mad because she was right, so drew a line in the sand the next day, stopped taking the, the pain meds, and I started studying for grad school. And when I got a 17% on my first grad school exam that I took for practice, I realized just how much work, I, work ahead was for me. 
Well, when you told me about getting to the next step and working hard to get off the pills, and also now with, with the grad school launching into that next career, I can't help but think about your mom and dad way back telling you that you really can do whatever you want to do. You just got to work really hard for it. Yeah. And so it sounds like you got into a kind of a dual physical and mental new world. I started to realize after a while that, you know, this was going to be a new version of myself. Um, and I used to define myself by my physical prowess. And I was like, well, you still can. You just have to recover from this and, and show people that you can do that. But this is also an opportunity for you to, to reinvent yourself, right? To kind of get these new things out there. Um, it's also an opportunity for you to inspire other people. And a lot of people look up to you. They're following this. And you have an amazing opportunity to overcome this adversity mm. and help out other people. That thought process, it helped me, but it also hurt me quite a bit, right? Because I would wear this mask. You know, I, I was a successful wounded vet, right? I was the, nothing was bothering me. It's fine. This is great. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me, right? Like, don't worry. I'm good. That was your veil. That was the veil, right? Because I'm like, you, you're here to inspire people, so you can't show any weakness to them. And for a long time, I think that, that wearing that mask, wearing that veil hurt me. And it didn't really allow me to really fully start the healing process. Mm. You know, and it took a little while for me to realize that, like, you still have this incredible ability to help people, but you're going to help people even more if you're vulnerable. If you show them the struggles that you're going through, if you talk about being addicted to pain meds, about abusing alcohol, having depression, post-traumatic stress, anxiety, going through all these things, then you're going to have an opportunity to inspire more people to be even more impactful mm. and coming to that realization for a little while it was it was pretty tough you know we talked about your parents too and but it also makes me think about that um catholic school born and raised and sort of you know you gotta you're selfless and how can you give back to society um I actually can't help but think about JFK as our first Catholic president at yeah. uh, number 35 sitting in these walls. I, I, you know, the more I studied uh, President Kennedy, the more I felt parallels to him. So uh, just in terms of his background, um, growing up in a kind of a wealthy family, not needing to serve, getting injured, and then just drawing strength from the fact that uh, he was able to be an agonizing pain for pretty much the majority of his adult life yeah. and still go on to do what he did, uh, you know, help me conquer some tough days. And JFK asked his dad, can you help me get into the Navy or something? I mean, it wasn't that inarticulate. You did a similar thing with your, uh, with your commander. You said, get me in that mission. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for your continued mission because your public speaking, um, your website, your documentary, Wounded by War, is giving back and in a real way. And, and, uh, um, and thanks to your family, uh, your wife, and your, uh, your awesome daughters for their support. Thank you. And it would be great to meet them someday. And uh, I'm sure you've been over to home base, right? Of course, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Anything else I miss, Kevin, um, that we miss, that we, we talked about a lot today? Yeah, you know, just I think I'm blessed, right? Um, for a long time, I didn't quite understand why all this was happening to me. Um, I, I questioned God why he allowed me to survive my injuries only to suffer so much. 
it became really clear to me in my last year of graduate school that, you know, for first thing was there was never going to be a point in my life where I was like 100% physically, mentally, and emotionally healed. But for the rest of my life, I'll need to put a daily effort into this second chance at life that I have, right, to honor my fallen brothers and comrades. Yeah. So every day I, I still put a ton of effort into to being who I am to get better every day. And I also had this realization from God, too, that everything that was happening to me was happening for a reason, right? Mm. I was chosen to walk this path, to mm. have this journey in life, to go through these struggles, to pass through this valley of humility so that I could then have this opportunity to empathize with people, right? To understand addiction, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and then have this opportunity to go out there and inspire other people. So I look at all this as the best thing that's ever happened to me in my mm. life for the, what it's given me and who it's made me into the best version of myself. And for everybody out there that's going through some very tough and difficult times in life, life is going to present you with these crucibles. And you have to change the way you think about it. Right? Don't think of it as this negative thing that you're enduring in life. Think about it as an opportunity for you to refine your character, to become a better person, to learn those lessons, right? To not give up. And when you get through it and you get on the other side of it, you're going to be the best version of yourself and you're going to be thankful you went through it. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Staff Sergeant Kevin Flyke is a true role model for many of us in any culture and for both service members and civilians. Kevin continues to educate us through public speaking and is a board member at the Green Beret Foundation. He's learned through academic leadership at the Sloan School at MIT and the Harvard Kennedy School, which is the John F. Kennedy School of Government. And make sure to check out Kevin's 2019 documentary called Wounded by War for a really incredible view of this story of injury and resilience. Thank you, Leslie Feinberg, our Government Relations Director, and Army Veteran Pat Smith, Home Base's Special Operations Liaison. And thank you so much, Kevin, for your service before and after 2011. And thank you to your wife, Kimberly Flake, and your whole family for their service over these trying years. (laughs) 